Think about the fact that women use financial products and services as a, at a rate of about 60% that of men, and yet they control more than 75% of consumer spending, and yet they make less and they're paid less. Support provided by the Vital Credit Card. Make a statement in your wallet with a sleek metal credit card that pays you cash back when you share and spend responsibly while helping you improve your credit health. Request your invite at vital.fintechconfidential.com. Welcome to Fintech Confidential, bringing you the people, tech, and companies that change how you pay and get paid. Julie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Ted. It's great to be here. SheBanks is a women's personal finance solution that plans to close that gap in the personal financial products for women that is reported to be anywhere between 300 and 700 billion dollars. With your decades of experience in global business, you've built a hundred million dollar international company. You were personally mentored by Mary Kay Ash, the founder of Mary Kay Cosmetics, and scaled up Mary Kay's business in Russia at the grand old age of 27. And you've worked with many other different businesses, skincare products, rental car companies, leasing, food service, real estate, the list just goes on and on. With such a diverse background, tell me, how did you fall into FinTech and start SheBanks? This is a great question because if I'm honest with you, four years ago, I don't think I'd ever really heard the word FinTech. So I had, uh, my two sons were born late in life for me after I'd had really a very illustrious international career. And one of them was born with a lot of health problems. So I had to leave my corporate career uh, to take care of him. And I'd been doing a lot of consulting work and sitting on boards, but as my two sons will get ready to go to college next year, I thought, do I have one more big startup in me? I thought, well, if I do, it has to be one that can really have a major social impact. It has to be one that is really going to be worthwhile doing. It has to be massively scalable. And, you know, what could it be? So I decided to go back to school. I went to Oxford in the fall of 2019 to do an MBA. And so I have spent the last three years studying fintech and learning <laughs> everything about fintech. And I knew that it was an issue for women because I have worked with tens of thousands of women micro entrepreneurs in my career. And I always knew that family finances were a challenge for them. And in Russia particularly, I went there at the height of tremendous socioeconomic upheaval. It was the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which had been in existence for more than 70 years. And the average male life expectancy in those years dropped to 52 years, oh, wow. which is shocking for a developed country. Why? Because all of the, there was 1,200% inflation. All ruble savings had been destroyed. All the Soviet state enterprises had dissolved. There were no jobs. And I literally had hundreds of women come through my offices on a weekly, monthly basis, you know, with tears in their eyes, what am I going to do? I have no money. We have no savings. My husband is drinking himself to death. I've got to put food on the table. I have to buy shoes for my kids. And so we were actually able to offer 
training and business training and teaching training of how to teach women to use skincare products and cosmetics. And the distributors really provide a service in an economy where there were no distribution networks, there were no credit card networks, there were no debit card networks. There was really pretty much nothing. And so that's really what drove me and my team to go to work every day is that we're helping women get through, through this time period. But until I really started looking into it, I did not realize how massive this problem was on a global scale. Women's World Banking, which is an expert in this, says that globally, worldwide, there are over a billion women who are underserved by existing financial institutions. And, and they, along with Oliver Wyman, they're the ones who say that if men and women were to use financial products and services at similar rates, you know, you'd see another 300 to 700 billion dollars of assets under management. So then I looked into the United States, and there are countries in Europe, uh, in Germany and the Netherlands specifically, where women's financial literacy and use of services, financial services, is really actually much more on par with men. Surprisingly or not, the United States is not one of those countries. And if we look at the fact that we have over 100 million women in the United States between the age of 20 and 74, this is a massive untapped market. And so when I realized the, the breadth of this gap and how large this white space was, which is the gap between the world of finances and the gap between communities of women, I just realized not only is this a massive business opportunity, and with fintech, you can now, you have the tools to massively scale software as a service. Uh, we can have a, a massive impact on, on socioeconomic issues. So that's kind of how I came up with the idea. When you look at the overarching mission of SheBanks, how would you simply describe it? And what motivated you to drive towards that mission? Very, very simply, our mission is to improve financial security for women. Now, this may not sound sexy. This may not sound exciting. It's clear, though. But it's very clear, and it's very simple. You know, go on the idea that keep it simple. And so when we look at how women are socialized, when we look at the history of women, when we look at the language used by the financial industry versus the language that's used by communities of women, and let's remember I'm a linguist by background, so I'm very focused on language, you know, it's, it's really no surprise that there is a massive disconnect between these two worlds. And so if we can lower the barriers to entry into the world of financial products and services by using language that women relate to. It's not that they don't understand or can't understand CAGR, ROY, ROW, you know, what's your money multiple, et cetera. It's just this is not really their native language. And so if you, again, if I went to Russia and wanted to be successful in business, why was I successful? I spoke the language, right? So you can much more easily build trust and a relationship when you speak a community's language and you understand their culture which I intimately do, and I feel comfortable in both worlds. So again, I started off as an interpreter and translator, and that's what I'm... If we make the world of financial products and services more accessible, more women will enter into it. But we also don't stop there, because if you're familiar with personal financial management apps like Mint or You Need a Budget, 
These are great apps and great tools, but in, in my experience, they, t they stop too soon. And if you know Alex Johnson, he writes a lot about FinTech and he has basically found that market penetration for personal finance apps stops at about 15% of your target market. Why? Well, I've used these products. And so it's great to get a badge or a little ding, hey, you met your budget goal. But honestly, does this give me the same dopamine hit that I get if I go to Neiman Marcus and get the latest, you know, not Manolo Blahniks? No, and it's boring and it is not fun. And I mean, I'm pretty serious. I have an MBA in finance and economics. My dad has a PhD in economics, but I always reference the Cindy Lauper song, you know, girls just want to have fun. You know, I just want to have fun. This has to be fun. And so if I look at the Mary Kay or Avon or Tupperware system of customer acquisition and engagement, these companies are experts at building communities of trust among women. And, you know, a lot of people denigrate these industries because they say, oh, you get into these opportunities. You know, you, most of the people don't make any money. Well, this is true, but this is not the main reason why women will join a community like Mary Kay. Mary Kay is very, very careful not to promise that you're going to make a lot of money. Now, you can make a lot of money. It's very hard. You have to work very hard. My mother was in the top 1% of all Mary Kay uh, independent sales force representatives. She had a 40-year career there, and she did make a lot of money. But you join because you are joining a community that enriches your life. So... If we will use a customer acquisition and engagement system like that, you know, devised by Mary Kay, it becomes a self-perpetuating community that grows by word of mouth and viral marketing and network effects. I'm not talking about multi-level marketing. I'm <laughs> talking purely about the system of engagement and community building. And if you look at a business model like NerdWallet, you know, Tim Chen is the CEO of NerdWallet. He IPO'd at $1.2 last year. Fantastic success story. However, they spend 50 to 70% of revenue on a single channel, marketing channel, which is content generation. And sometimes you'll see sponsored ads. This, for me, is shocking as someone who comes from a consumer marketing background because you can spend 35 to 40% of revenue by giving back to your membership community, and then you'll be creating a self-growing community mm -hmm. that reduces your customer acquisition costs, increases engagement, which increases customer lifetime value. So that, that is really where I see a phenomenal uh, way to enter into this white space that nobody is really dominating in the way that we wish to, to dominate it. With being relatively new to fintech, um, what would you say is the most important thing that you have learned so far in that journey? Well, what really surprised me was I did a research paper while I was at Oxford on, on the global fintech revolution. And there was a report, I believe, put out by Ernst & Young in 2018 about global fintech. <laughs> what are the top, what were the top three countries in fintech utilization in 2018 globally? I wasn't shocked to learn that China was number one, India is number two, and in third place was Russia. That did shock me. But then I started thinking about it. And if you think about it, you have a vast country with 11 time zones. It's the largest by geographical landmass in the world, Russia is. And if you think about how big that country is and how backwards it was after 70 years of pseudo-communism, 
are you ever going to lay, you know, copper wires? Are you ever going to lay fiber optic? No, you just go straight to 5G. And so you have all this vast territory and the only way to communicate, you know, adoption of smartphones in that market is like 93%. And so you're also, you don't have any legacy banking systems. You don't have any legacy technology systems. And one of the first and most successful digital banks is out of Russia, Tinkoff Bank, invested in by Goldman Sachs. So I, I own property in Russia. I own land in Russia. And so, you know, I just go down to my local corner bank, an old Soviet bank, Vneshktorga Bank, which is now VTB Bank, open an account. And I can tell you, the VTB Bank app is my favorite banking app in the world. I can do everything I want to instantly and securely from anywhere in the world on my phone using the VTB Bank app. And so um, that was really shocking and surprising to me. And then when I came back to the United States after being abroad for so long, and then I started trying to move money, I won't name any names, you know, (laughs) through my legacy banks, oh, I just wanted to tear my hair out, you know? It's... It's frictionful, it's aggravating, it's slow, it's just tremendously time-consuming and annoying. And so I thought, wow, huh, this, this is going to be a lot better soon, and I can help make this better. I could actually participate in, in what I, you know, is, the, is the happening fintech revolution in America today. One of the things that has always stuck out to me is the level of licensing um, that in the U.S. that you have to have um, compared to places like Europe. Um, across the entire European Union, you need one license, and you can transmit money across borders, around, through, in, and out. And once you have that license, you can truly control that money movement in near real time. In the U.S., on the other hand, you have your federal level. Then each one of the states has their own rules. And last time that I ran a, a client through that money transmitter mm-hmm. licensing process, we spent about $13 million to go through the process, getting them licensed in all the states in the country that required licensing. Some don't require licensing, some just require you to register, but those that are require you to register require you to have a ton of insurance and bonds and everything behind it. So we look at that expense, and then in order to keep all of that up, you're looking at anywhere from three to $10 million a year just to maintain that. So the overarching expense just to get into the business of being a money service business at its truest core is way more complicated and way more expensive. It's been a while since I did an e-money license in Europe. I think the last time I did it, it was right around 300,000 euros to get the license yeah. sponsored by a financial yeah. institution. Yeah. So the that, barriers are high, really high hurdle rate to high. get into this, you know, industry. Well, and for good reason, you know, banks need to be secure. They need to be like Fort Knox. It's an inherently conservative business. So, you know, I do have a lot of empathy for banks. I really do. And again, why was Russia able to to become, you know, on the cutting edge of, of the adoption of financial technology? Because there was nothing there. So it's a greenfield site. So you don't have to deal with all of that legacy uh, infrastructure rules and regulations. I mean, there are good and bad things about that, right? Yeah. But Russia did go through a period of consolidation where, you know, there weren't enough rules and regulations. They had probably like 7,000 banks. And they did fix that, and they got it down to probably 1,500 and then 800. And their central banker, by the way, one of the most talented uh, and resourceful central bankers in the world, Elvira Nibulina. She's just absolutely brilliant. So... <laughs> 
When you look at the way SheBanks is approaching financial services, the financial services gap, what do you see as the opportunities over the course of the next five years for SheBanks and and their customers. SheBanks can easily scale to be a billion dollar company because the va- the market size is just so vast and the disconnect is so great. A lot of innovation comes not from brilliant new ideas, you know, I'm no Albert Einstein. He had truly brilliant new ideas, but a lot of innovation today comes from combining existing ideas in a new way. So if we look at the SheBanks model, It's based on three business models that in their own right are all tremendously successful. So if you look at a tool like Mint or you need a budget, this is a personal financial management app. Then you look at the nerd wallet business model, which is a two-sided marketplace of financial products and services, also tremendously successful. But none of them take it to the third level, which is based on the network gamification and community building model used by companies like, reputable companies like Avon, Tupperware, and Mary Kay. So SheBanks really will take all three of these business models and combine them using a personal financial management app, not as an end in itself, but simply as a tool. It's like a ladder that you can lower down into an ocean, a blue ocean marketplace filled with hundreds of millions of customers that are not in the system. So I don't need to get customers away from Mint or YNAB or Nerd Wallet because I guarantee you if we stand in the parking lot of a Walmart or a Target in August at back to school time and we interview the women, we interviewed mm-hmm. 100 women coming out of there with their carts piled high with school supplies, you know, maybe with three kids in tow. And we're like, how's your 401k doing? Have you checked, you know, YNAB lately to see what you're you're on track for, for your 401k? And how much did you spend last month, you know, on XYZ? And have you ever heard of NerdWallet? 98% of them will say, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. So that's the very nature of a blue ocean market space. Your success does not depend upon getting people away from existing products they use. You're simply taking a new product to people who have never been exposed to this. So I think that is really the opportunity for SheBanks. So you talked about something, and what I'm hearing is that from your perspective, everything's like disconnected, disjointed, just not, not well aligned. And people want to see how they use their money. They want to track their money. They want to grow their money. What is the vision for SheBanks to deliver on those desires? So we will know that we are successful when we see women decreasing debt, increasing savings, and investing. The holy grail here is to get more women to invest because this is how the top 1%, unless you own a company like Amazon or Tesla, (laughs) okay, or PayPal, you know, how do the top 1% grow their wealth? And we saw through the pandemic how the wealth of the top, you know, decile increased massively. Why? Because they're all invested in the stock market. And so women self-report, they lack confidence in investing, they don't know what's right for them, they don't know where to begin, they don't trust existing financial industry, and in many cases for good reason. So it's very simple message. If you wanna build wealth, you must invest in America. Invest in the S&P 500, invest in the Dow Jones. 
And it's so easy to do this today. You can buy an ETF. If you buy a Spider or Standard & Poor 500 ETF, historically, the compound annual growth return of the S&P 500 is around 8% for the last 50 years. It's a buy and hold strategy. Now, you do need to have your cash cushion in case something goes wrong, you don't want to be selling at the bottom of the market. That's when you should be buying. So do call dollar cost averaging. This is really simple. But we don't have to have this competitive language of, yeah, beat the market, you know, get on the latest crypto meme trade or whatever it is. Yeah, if you want to gamble in Las Vegas, great. We'll help you set aside a thousand bucks. You can lose the whole thing by Bitcoin, right? But that is not going to be your long-term retirement strategy to build wealth. It shouldn't be. It should not be your main strategy for that. So uh, as we see women's financial health improve, that's when we, and we see them increasing their level of investing, that's how we'll know we're successful. How are you positioned to be that leader okay. to give those experiences that are better than what's out in the marketplace today? Basically, the way we position ourselves is, you know, we are the community of trust for women where we're not going to try to sell you a product that you don't need or that doesn't fit your personal circumstances. So our app, which is being provided by MX Technologies, has very powerful capabilities, very powerful analytics capabilities that gives us insight into our members' data. Now, we never sell data, and we only look at data that our members give us permission to see. The, but when And we don't even need to know their name or connect their data to them because using the, the capabilities of the app, we can simply look at spending habits and data and then target people who have certain spending habits or data with suggestions and products that fit their circumstances. So let me give you a use case. Let's say I have 100,000 members using my app. I can query all members paying a mortgage. Then I can see if they have a home warranty policy, for example. Then, without knowing their names or anything else about them, I can simply send them an offer uh, you know, with a deal on a home warranty policy. And then on my website, I can have information and education about why a home warranty policy can help you avoid an unexpected large expense if you have a major system in your house go down, the refrigerator breaks, the oven breaks, whatever it is, by having this home warranty policy, this will protect you from having a large unexpected expense of 800 to multiple thousands of dollars. So is the idea to take it a step further also and say, by doing this, this is how it will impact your budget. And this is where you're going to have to reallocate funds in order to protect yourself from this catastrophic event? Well, the statistics are very, very clear. It's something like 50% of the population, you know, doesn't have $500 to meet an unexpected expense. This is what often can tip people into bankruptcy or, un, you know, being under the, the poverty line. So this is just you know, this keeps me awake at night. This is just so frightening and so terrifying. And of course, if you're in this situation, the anxiety and the stress it causes is phenomenal. We just heard today, you know, that more than 76% of people say financial worries are their biggest worry. And especially in today's climate with the uncertainty we have, inflation going on, you know, recession looming. I tried my best not to use those words today. Yes, yes. So, <laughs> But I, I appreciate this perspective. This is why this is more needed than ever, and especially for women. 
Because women fill more than 76% of part-time jobs, they're more likely to take time out from a career for childbearing, elder care, caring for a spouse. Mm -hmm. They retire earlier, they live longer, they, they earn less at every turn. They are more apt to live in poverty at every age. So this is what I talk, this is what I mean when I'm talking about a massive socioeconomic problem. Because even if you're not really concerned with women's situation per se, if you have mothers, wives, daughters, sisters, all right, they're being affected by this. Mm -hmm. And even if you have none of those factors, if you pay taxes in America, you should be concerned about this because when women don't have money, they can't make choices. They can't retrain for higher paying jobs and they have to rely on social programs more when they have less money. So if we can get them to have more money and have a cushion, it just has an all around beneficial effect really on everybody, their children, their spouses, their communities, their families, and the entire society in which they live. So this is why this is really just a massively urgent issue in my opinion. We're here at MXS 2022 at a beautiful resort here called Snowbird in Utah during the fall where the leaves are starting to change. What do you hope the attendees from this event take away? And even more specifically, from your session around changing the norm around finance and the biases that we have? When I look at my experience in international markets, when I went to Russia in the 90s, I came from Manhattan, and you can use the development in lesser developed countries, you can use the progress that has been made in developed economies as a crystal ball to look into what's going to happen in developing and emerging markets. They will develop in 98% of the cases as developed countries have, have developed. So everything that I had in Manhattan, you know, dry cleaning being delivered to your house, you know, restaurant take being delivered to your door, cleaning services that you can book online and come to your apartment. All of that exists now today in Moscow, which didn't exist there 10, 15, 20 years ago. By the same token, if we see that the adoption of fintech by populations in Russia, China, and India are at 97% and the United States is at 47%, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out which way, which direction the United States is going. And I think uh, one of the major takeaways that I had from the sessions this morning, especially uh, Simon Taylor's presentation, is we have all the tools and technology available to us now in the United States today. So it's just a question of how fast we can adopt them and use them. So it's, it, it, but to my mind, it's absolutely inevitable that we will adopt and use those tools. And the, the institutions that don't adopt and use those tools simply won't be able to keep up. They won't be competitive. Do you think that gap is, a, is more education of, of the, the need or the importance or, or even that they're even available? I, I really think this is something that is going to be driven by consumers. Consumers will gravitate to those companies and fintechs that offer them better experiences. Uh, you can see a lot of financial institutions like JP Morgan that are, are really striving hard to innovate and become more innovative and adopt these new technologies. But again, many banks, even if they want to be innovative, they're, they're saddled with legacy systems and they are subject to these rules and regulations that make it very hard for them to innovate and quickly adapt. And so it's not because they don't want to, 
it's difficult. So I think that this will be a consumer-led and consumer-driven revolution, and you will see um, continuing mergers and partnerships between existing financial institutions and legacy systems and fintechs. So we're coming towards the end of our conversation. I've enjoyed every last minute of it, so I appreciate it. I've got two specific questions and one general question left for you. The specific question is, if you were to give fintech founders that one piece of advice as they build out their technology, as they build out their company, what would that be? Don't do it. <laughs> okay. You have to be crazy to be a founder. No, really, honestly. Um, I say that facetiously. It, it's incredibly difficult. It's very exciting. You really have to have an appetite for risk. You really have to kind of like to live on the edge. You know, the opportunity cost is hugely high, not to mention the financial cost. So my, my main piece of advice is uh, you need to be really, really driven to do this if you want to do it. And I'm not really trying to discourage you. I'm just saying be ready. There was a speaker at the Move DevCon conference in Denver a few weeks ago talking about his first startup and how, you know, it's easy for him to work 16 hours a day. He's really into it. And then he woke up one day and he realized, oh, he's just exhausted. Couldn't focus, couldn't concentrate. You know, what was, what, what was happening? And he realized that he wasn't so much in love with the mission of his company as he was in love with just, you know, kind of the idea of a startup. So really, I think you need to be mission driven and that mission has to be something you feel so strongly about that, you know, you'll basically pay and you will crawl across a desert with no water, try to achieve this mission. You will wake up in the middle of the night thinking about it. You know, how can I achieve this mission? You really have to be incredibly just driven by wanting to see this happen. Uh, otherwise, I think it's going to be really tough psychologically to sustain yourself through the difficulties that are startups. A lot of the companies that are coming out now, SheBanks is a perfect example that it is purpose-driven, mission-driven, and that purpose drives them, the mission drives the pur purpose, and that, that cyclical, it, it creates almost an infinite energy machine once you get those two aligned. And I can totally understand how how that founder you were talking about lost that sense of purpose. Yeah, and then he mission. went on to do another startup where he, 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 he went mission first. And it's a very successful startup today and he's very happy and has been very successful, right? And you know, don't be afraid to fail forward fast. Mm -hmm. You know, you do, I, I'm not really an advocate of go fast and break things. I'm really like go fast and build things, right? So build fast. Um, but don't, don't get so bought into some idea you have pivot fast when you need to adapt fast, be flexible. So, uh, fail forward fast and build something that reminds me. And I cannot remember who the quote is from, so I'm not even going to try and quote on it, but it was the idea of make decisions quickly and change them slowly. Yes. Yes. And try something, you know, all of team members come to me. And I'll be like, okay, what are the risks if we do this? Okay, those are acceptable. Do it. See if it works. Come back to me a week, two weeks, whatever, but don't wait too long. If it's not working, then stop doing it. Let's do something else. Tell me what working with MX has really meant to you personally, as well as SheBanks. I really uh, love MX Technologies. It's just a fantastic company. 
I spent about 18 months interviewing development shops and we were debating whether to build or buy. And since for my minimum viable product, this personal financial management app is a tool. It's not an end in myself, it's in itself. It's just a tool that I'm going to use to help us get where we wanna be. So the idea of having to spend months and months building something that is not even our ultimate product or goal just seemed really um, not a good path. And I'm glad I didn't go down that path because then we were connected with MX one year ago today. Our SheBanks branded app is on the app store, incredibly powerful tool. It's super fast. It has powerful data analytics and insights and marketing capabilities. It has a unique in-app generated score, financial wellness score called FinStrong, not related to your credit score, but you know, based on your level of debt, savings, and investment. So it's, it's absolutely perfect for us. And it's a fantastic solution that we were able to get up and running relatively fast. I'm an investor, I'm investing in this company. I don't wanna invest my money uh, in a super, super risky proposition as all startups are. So by having an app for your MVP that already exists with all these capabilities, you inherently de-risk the entire proposition so you can get into the market with an MVP and start getting traction, building your brand and building your community. It's a no brainer. So I'm, I'm very grateful that MX exists. And of course, the ethos of the company, which I think goes right back to Brandon DeWitt, who is the founder, I feel it every day. I feel it in, you know, Amber Cooley, Eric Henry, our development team that is implementing this for me. They do so much for us. It's just an absolute delight and pleasure to work with them. And you feel that ethos, I mean, in every interaction. I really can't say enough, you know, positive <laughs> things about them. It is really great to have a, a company that that follows their mission, their values, um, through and through, uh, forwards and backwards. And, yeah, and their mission is, our mission is very much aligned with their mission, very much so. And that's so important for us. I've, we just simply would not be able to work with a company where there wasn't mission alignment. So we've talked about a bunch of things, everything from l Russian language to talking about a financial app and a whole bunch of stuff. Heck, we even talked about skincare of all things. If there is there anything additional that maybe we haven't covered that you wanted to make sure that the audience heard? One other unique aspect of the SheBank's business model is that we will aggregate the buying power of women. So if you think about the fact that women use financial products and services as a, at a rate of about 60% that of men, and yet they control more than 75% of consumer spending, and yet they make less and they're paid less. So this is also a big structural problem. If you think about aggregating the buying power of all those women, and if you can access their, their spending patterns to see where they're spending the most money and who they're spending that money with, you can go to those uh, businesses and say, look, I have 150,000 people who spend this much with your company on a monthly, yearly basis. I would like to negotiate some special deals for them. And so you help to maximize the buying power that your member community has so that the money they do make goes further and brings them a lot more value. 
So this is critical to our mission. We need to help women maximize the money they have and make their spending power work harder for them. And this is a critical element of the SheBanks model. So for those people that want to learn more about the SheBanks model, all the great things that you're doing, what is the best way for them to reach out to you and the rest of the SheBanks team? Well, you can contact me directly at julie at shebanks.com, J-U-L-I-E. You can also go to our website, www.shebanks.com. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, Just uh, get in touch. Fantastic. We'll go ahead and add all of that information into the show notes, as well as all the links and everything. So everybody doesn't have to go searching for it. So we'll have that down there. So click on the links and it'll take you right there. Julie, thank you so much for your time today. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. And I know we could probably talk for many, 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 many more hours uh, around these topics. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you, Ted. It's been a fantastic opportunity. And there's nothing I like more than talking about SheBank. So it's been delightful.